This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Genesis chapter 42. While you're finding Genesis 42, I I want you to, if you don't mind, take a look here. I'd like you to peep my shoes. Peep my kicks? Is that, am I, if, if you're 16, am I even close to, no? What do I say? Yeah, but that came from like a 40-year-old. What does a, six, what does a 16-year-old say that, about that? Well, this is not working. Well, weirdly, it's about to make my point. So I, um, these are my hokas. Now, when I got the hokas, it's been a couple months ago. And I said, uh, I remember on a sermon, I was trying to make a point. And if, if I'm being honest, I was fishing for pity. But mostly I was trying to make a sermon point. I, and, but I don't even remember what the point was other than it, it involved my feet hurt a lot. And uh, by the end of the day, I had received a multiplicity of messages from people telling me uh, their feet hurt too and here's what you should do. Uh, now, one of it was only one with an essential oil. The rest of it was, <laughs> which is pretty big deal when you think about it. That should have been all of them, but um, <laughs> I love the oils. Um, but, I, uh, but there was this common thread between them. First of all, I got a church full of people with some super jacked up feet, as best I can tell. But the second thing was, I saw hoka, 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 hoka. Everybody's saying hokas. Now, that sounds exciting, except for that the average median age of the people sending these messages were about 55, okay? All due respect to guys my age, we are not on the vanguard of fashion. Do you know what I'm saying? We, when it comes to, when you've come to the intersection of function, and fashion, you choose function all day long. I mean, I wear fishing shirts for crying out loud. It's, there's nothing fashionable about that. It's because it breathes. And so I just assumed that these were old people orthopedic Dr. Scholl's shoes. Uh, because let's be honest, and if you're young, listen, I want you to hear me say this. Old people, they know what they're doing. I'm gonna make a point here. I'm gonna prove it to you. When you come to a stoplight with your parents and you see someone sitting next to you in a Lexus RS 300 or an ES 300 or an RX 330, I want you to look and see who's driving that, and tell me that it is not an 81 year old man <laughs> or a 68 year old bleach blonde female uh, real estate agent with glasses with the little chains on from Brentwood. I'm looking around, are any? I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to know your room. But, but here's, the, here's why, because old people know what they're doing. There's a reason why when you look at the stoplight next to you and you see a BMW, that it is a 30-year-old, 35-year-old person who just likes the speed in the German engineering, or the uh, bushes, I might add. Um, but <laughs> but here's, what I, what, here's what a nice older person told me. I was a long time ago, I was test driving a BMW because I thought I was cool was not, but I thought I was, and, and, uh, and man, boy, they drive 
They drive real good. They corner so nice. But a nice older man said, yeah, that's true. Uh, the parts are very expensive on a Lexus. They're very expensive on a BMW. It's just that with a Lexus, you're going to need a whole lot less of them. And he was right. It totally turned out right. And the first time I test drove that Lexus, it was like driving on air. Like you turn on the stereo and the Bose comes on and it's just like there's 500 pounds of sound insulation in the doors and it just old people know what you're doing. So I thought that's what these shoes are, which is old people know what they're doing. I was leaving for Haiti that week. My feet were in so much pain. I knew I was going to be walking 12,000 miles a day. And I literally ran out that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, bought Hocus that afternoon without any research at all. And I put them on and I went to Haiti and it was like walking in a pair of Lexus ES 300s. It was like, <laughs> like, like people inside like massaging my feet while I walked. I'm like, man, old people know what they're doing. So, but at the same time, I'm now a little embarrassed because I think I'm officially an old guy, which is fair, wearing like Dr. Scholl's. I mean, look at the soles on these things. You know what I'm saying? This is the kind of stuff that a doctor prescribes to you. And so even that next Sunday, I'm walking in here. I'm a little bit embarrassed about it. I make a comment to Dave Wagner. But yeah, but he's like, you know, the truth is, is, you know, if feet ain't right, ain't nothing right. I'm like, well, he's true. So I'm going function, okay? Hold that thought. Because two days later, I'm at Coffee and Coconuts, which is my office. I don't have an office. Coffee and Coconuts is my office. And I run into my friend Jennifer Breland. Her and Jeremy have been friends of Shannon and I since I can remember. And with them is uh, her 18-year-old, uh, very hip, very fashionable, uh, Katie uh, Breland, their daughter. And Katie, who is clearly someone who knows fashion, says, uh, un unsolicited, I might add, Mr. Tyler, I love your hocus. Two days later, I don't, this time it's a complete stranger. And she says, ooh, I like your hocus. I, I'm 50 years old. No one has ever stopped ever to compliment my shoes, ever, for any reason. And then it happened again, this time with a young guy, like back from Hawaii, like with the abs and the Instagram account. And he says, bruh, man, your hocus are sweet. <laughs> so, I want you to know now, that I'm walking around with these hocus like there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you have any idea how cool I thought I was in these shoes. But here's the thing. Nothing has changed about these shoes. They are the exact same ugly shoes with the big thick soles that look like I got them from a prescription at Walmart. Nothing has changed except the story that I'm telling myself about them. And that's it. This story, this what's true about God story of Joseph is a story of two narratives about the same incident. Joseph finds his way into Egypt through no fault of his own, through injustice, through betrayal, through loss, through death, 
And the only difference between him and between his brothers is the narrative that they're telling themselves about this incident. You see, Jacob's narrative, you find it in Genesis 37, uh, 42, I'm sorry, 42 verse 36. He's, he is now... His brothers, I'm sorry, his sons have gone to Egypt. They're trying to get the food. There's famine in the land. Now they've, uh, Joseph and the, and the Egyptians, even though they don't even know it's Joseph yet, have kept Simeon back. And he wants him to bring Benjamin. Literally, Jacob is literally feels like he's losing everything. He's already lost one son. He just, as far as he knows, lost another son. And now he wants to lose a third son. It's literally crashing down on him. And his narrative of the same story is, everything is against me. He says to his brothers, you want me to do this? You want me to do that? And you want me to lose this? Everything is against me. Joseph betrayed, sold into slavery, lied, unjustly accused and imprisoned. And his life has been completely uprooted from the promise. And Joseph's narrative is in chapter 45 when he comes to his brothers and his narrative in chapter 45, verse five says that, hey, don't freak out. Now his brothers are back, right? He's just revealed who he is. They think, okay, he's gonna kill us now because it's Joseph and we've been lying our whole time. But Joseph looks at him and says, don't freak out in chapter 45, verse five. Don't, don't freak out. You guys didn't do this. God sent me here to, I could save many lives. Jacob's narrative, everything is against me. Joseph's narrative, God is for me. And in the hard times caused by weak men, the difference between the prophets that arise and the weak people that cause the hard times is the narrative about the story that they are receiving. It's just that simple. See, in Jacob's narrative, he is literally feels like everything is crashing in on him. Uh, look, I'm not a, I've never lost a child. And I know maybe even in this room, statistically speaking, there are those of you in this room that have lost a child. I don't pretend to know the grief that you have experienced with that. And I don't want you to think that I do, because I don't. But I want to point you to somebody who does, and that's Jacob. And Jacob, in this moment, was allowing his grief. He had a grief that was in him that was so profound and so heavy that he actually says here in verse 38 of chapter 42, I think, my son will not go down there with you. I'm not going to let him go down there with you. I think it says 37, but it's supposed to be 42. Sidebar, I made these slides this morning. I've been in Panama City Beach all week, so if there's some typos, I'm going to ask you to cut me some slack. <laughs> he said that his, the last ver like the last sentence of verse 38 you are going to bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. His grief was leading him somewhere and it was going to lead him to his own grave. And I bring this up because in a hard world created by weak men, we are going to have a multiplicity of opportunities for grieving in our lives. 
Things are gonna happen. Things have already happened. And how we allow this to move us forward is everything. You see, grief, and some of you in this room know it personally. Some of you are well more versed in it than even I am. But here's what I know about grief. It is a journey on a river that you didn't want in a boat that you didn't choose. But if you will stay in the boat, it will lead you somewhere better. The challenge, the struggle, the temptation is to get out of the boat and to camp on the shore and stay there. You see, there are these five stages of grief, and I know that everybody knows them, I think, these days. And The first one is, is denial. And by the way, if you've never lost a personal family or whatever, I, I can say this as a country, for the most part, that feeling that you felt for a lot of last year, some of you still feel right now, is the feeling of grief. Because you were grieving the loss of the country you thought you lived in. I thought we were doing this, but it's not at all what's happening. I have not nearly as much control as I had in my life. I'm losing, I, I, I felt a lot of grief over what was being taken from me that I thought I had. And what are the, the first stages of grief, right? Denial, right? So I'm denying it. If you remember back in March, anybody who was in Israel with me back in March, I am, here's how clueless, Bob and Carol, you remember this. Here's how clueless and in denial I am of what's coming. I'm walking around Jerusalem singing my Corona to the tune of my Sharona. That didn't age very well. But I didn't know. I'm in denial. We get back, like, okay, there's no way they'll close down schools. They're even saying we won't close down schools. It causes way more harm. They said that out loud on CNN and MSNBC and Washington Post. And what happened three weeks later? They closed schools. They said they wouldn't shut down the entire country. There's no way they would shut down it. I'm in so much denial that, Shannon, remember this? I almost kept my flight to Morocco on March 17th. There's no way they'll shut down borders. I would have been in Morocco for a very long time. But then I went from there. I, I, the journey continues, and then you end up in anger, and I think negotiation. And so, but the path that it leads you to eventually is called acceptance. Now, there is no time schedule on grief, okay? There is no clock that says your grief should be done by this and your grief should be done by that. It's we're all on a river, but the river is going to take us where we're going to take us. And what happened with Jacob that's different from Joseph is that Jacob allowed his grief to cause him to camp out in the anger phase. He camped in fear. He camped in a place where he was now, his grief was now affecting everybody around him. His children, so, right? So they're, they're in famine, they're desperate, they're hungry. They got to get back to Egypt to get more food. He won't even let them leave because he's so scared of losing them that he won't let them leave. And so now he's trapping them in his grief. There's consequences in this stuff. If we trap ourselves, it traps those around us as well. Moms, dads, grandmas, and grandpas, stay in the boat. Allow it to move you forward. 
There's days of sadness. There's days of happiness. There's days where it's all at the same time. But as long as we keep moving in the boat, we're moving towards someplace called acceptance. I think that where we get into a, a place of, and I, I've, I know I'm speaking some of losing a child, but for all of us, whether you've been abused in a, in a relationship, whether you've been abused by a boss, you know, one of the things happens now in our world is uh, this boss was mean to me, so I'm going to write tweets about it, I'm going to call the news station about it, and I'm going to tell my version of the story about it. And by the way, the longer you're in it and the longer you're in bitterness, you're not actually any longer looking for forgiveness. or You're just looking for revenge at some point. And the longer you stay in it, the longer you're trapped in that. I mean, I've had it happen to me. I had a, someone just not long ago uh, put a social media post up explaining a story that, uh, of a meeting that I had with them that is, you know, it's been a few years, two years, maybe three years, and it was 100% the opposite of what happened in that meeting. I had people in the meeting that I actually called mom. I'm like, am I remembering this wrong? Am I crazy? Am I? I don't think this person is a liar. I don't think this person is a bad person. I think this person loves Jesus and she loves her children and she loves her family and she loves the Lord, but she got herself caught in this trap of bitterness and cynicism to the point now where she's actually believing her own narrative. I think she actually believes that the way it happened. She got out of the boat and she made a home in the grief. She got out and she made a home in the pain that Jesus wanted her to pass through, not stay in. In a world that we're in right now, there's going to be way more opportunities for this. And you've got to make a decision. Do I want to go with the Jacob narrative? The Jacob narrative is there's, everything's against me. The Jacob narrative is I'm the victim. The Jacob narrative is I'm never getting out of this and it's everybody else's fault. That's the Jacob narrative. But then there is this Joseph narrative. And I would like to present to you that this is actually God's narrative. Because Joseph, if you flip over just two chapters to chapter 45, Joseph tells us his version the brothers are now here. The brothers are now revealed. They know it's Joseph now. They think this guy is going to send us down the river. He's going to sell us into slavery. They actually offer to make themselves slaves to him. Where did that language come from? They knew that what they did to him was sell him into slavery, that the only just punishment for this was for them to now become slaves, an eye for an eye. But look at what Joseph says to him in chapter 45, verse 5. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead. For two years, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You see, the guy that wrote the five stages of grief, his name is Dave, and I really should remember his last name, but I do not. Just last year, year before, released another book because he said I was wrong. There's actually a sixth stage. The sixth stage after acceptance is giving your pain purpose and meaning. That's the journey that this boat will take you on. 
And what Joseph was experiencing was for the first time now seeing that in this hurt and this pain and this suffering. Now, by the way, this is a 20-year journey for him. I don't know when it came to him. I don't think this is something you decide. I think it's someplace you arrive as long as you stay in the boat. That in this boat, he arrived at the place where he finally saw all of it became clear that God was up to something. And of course, it's easy to say that to Joseph because here's Joseph. He's now rich. He's, he's powerful. He's got eunuchs like fanning him with, like, do they have the eunuchs? Is that the right culture? Like fanning him? Like This is what I'm imagining. Putting grapes in his mouth. Like it's easy for him to say that's, uh, it's working out for me here. But all along the way, you saw seeds of this in Joseph in the prison, in the palace, in the pit, where he was holding on to faith. It wasn't that Joseph didn't grieve. Please hear me say that. It wasn't that Joseph wasn't sad. You can read four, five, six times where Joseph had to leave the room so that he could cry. Your tears are not your enemy. They're not what's wrong with you. They're what's right with you. The tears, the sorrow. In fact, Genesis 43, I think it's verse 30, it actually speaks of him weeping from his bowels. Isn't that weird? Imagine if every Peter Satira or Chicago song from the 80s switched out heart with bowels. <laughs> kind of loses its allure, don't it, Salvo? Imagine you got all those songs, you got to go back and reproduce. But it's accurate because when you have lost someone that you love, what do you know? It's like a kick in the gut. When the song comes on and you remember and it just hits you out of nowhere. You've lost your mother. I remember when I lost my mama in 2008. It was, it was a long time and every once in a while it's still, you know what, it happened to me just not that long ago. I was walking into that new sanctuary and it was the first time it hit me that my mom, who thought I was a pastor from the time I was five years old, I'm walking into a building that I'd finally, I mean, for years she used to, she called me her son, the minister. I'm, I'm managing rock bands. I've got earrings everywhere. Like there's, I, I could not have been anything further from a minister, but that's what she said I was because we volunteered as a youth pastor at a small church. Never mind that I'm booking rock bands and being whatever. Uh, she was always confused by the Dove Award. She didn't understand any of it. Uh, there was a season, I will add, that when we booked Sandy Patty, that for that season, she went from, you know, oh, my son, the minister, to my son, you know my son, he, he books with the Sandy Patty. Do you know who Sandy Patty is? <laughs> and then it was back to Cutlass, and she didn't understand any of that. Like, did have to have so many tattoos? Like, on their neck? How will they ever get a job? Like, I, I don't know, Mom. Like, but... Point being, she never got to see this part, and I walked into that sanctuary. I just, I'd forgotten something, and I walked back in to get it. It was at the end of one of the conduit next. Everybody was gone, and it just, it was like a kick in the gut. Like, oh, yeah, here I am. It's 15 years later. Your sadness is not your enemy. Your sadness is a gift. It shows how much you cared about something. So don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say that you need to rush through this process of grief. All I'm asking you to do is to say, if I give the narrative of 
Jacob, wherever things against me, that is me camping out and staying here forever. If I can find the narrative that says, but God is working on my behalf, that in all things, God is working together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, then whatever it is that's in front of me, when I don't understand it, how painful it is, even if you have been mistreated and you have been abused, I'm not saying stay in the abuse, but I am saying that you can one day look back like Joseph and say, What you meant for harm, God has used for good in my life. You see, the name of this boat that you are on is called Faith. The USS Faith. Faith that believes that what I'm on is going to take me someplace better as long as I stay in the boat. And here's why we can know this. I was fascinated as I studied through this Joseph series that there's actually history, there's proof that Joseph existed. Did you know this? In Egyptian history, it's a great way to waste an entire afternoon. Studying the Egyptian history of Joseph, there's actually a tomb in Cairo of a leader. There's no body in there. He has a Hebrew name. He ruled at the end of the Bronze Age. Uh, Here's why that's fascinating. Think about when you think of the Egyptian face pieces and there's, what is it, snakes on it, oftentimes made of gold, oftentimes made of bronze. Now think with me to Numbers 21. The people of Israel had been disobedient. They had been griping and complaining. Once again, God had delivered them and once again, they're whining and they're moaning and it says that God sent snakes into the camp. So it's like Samuel L. Jackson, snakes on a plane, but with Jews. Snakes, vipers, biting them. They're dying. And God tells Moses to do something very fascinating. He says, hey, take a bronze, bronze, bronze age, create a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and put it up on the highest place viewable from everywhere in Israel. And everyone who has been bitten by a viper, all they have to do is look on the bronze and they will be healed. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that you and I, right, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Historians and theologians tell us that that bronze serpent represented Jesus on a cross, becoming sin for us. Sin, the serpent, representing sin on that. All they had to do was look on the bronze and be healed. All Joseph's family had to do was to look to Joseph because he was there to heal them. Why on earth wouldn't everybody look at the bronze serpent? You've just been bit by a snake and all i got to do is look at the bronze serpent. serpent. Why wouldn't I look at that? I wonder if a conversation with Peggy Esklin said this once and she said, Darren, what if it was because they were just so captivated by their own wound that they wouldn't look at that? Our culture right now is a culture that is captivated by our wound. We're exalting our wound. We're writing blogs about our wounds. We are staring at our wound when there is one that has been wounded for us that if we'll just stare on him, he will heal that wound and heal the wounds of all of us around us. You're not going to find healing 
staring at your own wound. You're going to die in it. Don't buy into that. There are people, yes, they've hurt you. There are people, yes, they wounded you. And you have two choices here. Everything is against me, which means if everything's against me, that means it's all up to me to fix this. If everything's against me, it means it's all up to me to rise up and to fix this. But if God is for me, I can look at the bronze, look at his wound, not my wound. He heals my wound, and I'll let him take care of the rest. That is the only way that the violence cycle ends in tribal violence in Sudan. It is the only way that the cycle ends in our country is for us to stop biting each other and stare at the wound that was for our healing as well. You see, Jesus, the promise wasn't that for every bad thing, I get a good thing. All things. He says, I, God meant all this to work together for good. You meant this for harm. God's using it for good. Romans 8, 28. But verse 29 says that what's good, the good thing is that you and I are becoming more and more like Christ. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the good. And I'm going to end with this. I want you to hear this. This is from Tim Keller's book, The Reason from for God. If you've never read The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, he quotes a little bit from The Lord of the Rings, but he says this, that just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead. Do you remember this part of the film? But he was alive and he cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. The wound, the pain, it's not lost, it's not wasted. Somehow in the grand scheme of eternity, eternity will even be better because of that wound. And so you can look to the person who has hurt you and harmed you. You can look and do what Stephen Colbert said when he talked about his father and two brothers dying in a plane crash when he was 10 years old and said that his Christian faith was eventually what formed the idea in him that I became grateful for the thing that I, least, that I wish happened the least. It's the paradox of the gospel. It's the paradox of God. To be grateful for that thing that I wished happened the least to become grateful for requires me staying in the boat and the faith that I'm taking it to a place that someday on the other side, that not only will this sad thing become untrue, but whatever my eternity feels like, it will actually be better because I experienced that this side of heaven. You have two narratives to choose from whether it's your boss, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your parent. I'm not, again, saying stay in an abusive relationship, but what I am saying is give yourself permission to look at God's narrative. For crying out loud, I let 19-year-old children tell me these cools were shoes, were cool. How much more should I let the God of the universe give me the narrative for those stuff that is happening in my life? And why wouldn't you? That's what's true about God. That's what we got to know and believe. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, for your kindness. 
Lord, do you give us the power? If I trust that you're God and you're going to figure this out, I don't have to take down the powerful person that hurt me. I don't have to throw rocks at the person that harmed me. I can trust, Lord, that you are going to handle that. And you're going to handle it better than me, and you're going to handle it perfectly, whatever that looks like. I can scooch off of your throne and put you on it. Like Joseph, I'm not God. You are. Lord, I pray that you give us each the strength to fall out of love with our wounds and fall in love with the wounds on you that have healed us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.